0: Good morning. Children may be dismissed at this time. It is good to see you all. It's good to be back home. Uh, It's good to actually sing God's praises with God's people and actually be able to hear God's people singing God's praises every time we travel. I get frustrated and saddened by the reality that it seems that no one understands the concept of congregational singing except for Andy Park. So, it's good to be home. John chapter 20. It's good to be back in John. Happy Resurrection Sunday, for that is what this day is, as is every Sunday. For the very topic of our text is the reason why. We gather together Sunday after Sunday to worship our Lord, our resurrected Lord. And that resurrection really does change everything, or at least it's supposed to. But as Pastor Mike opened last week, so many of us are so often so sad. Why is that and and, and what can be done about it? This is my first sermon with you in the new year. 2024 is here. We are two weeks in today. Resolutions have been made. Resolutions have been broken. In fact, Friday, two days ago, was often referred to as Quitter's Day because that's about as far as most of us get. But it is the start of a new year, and we almost cannot help but look forward and make plans and desire to make changes. What ought I to do in 2024? What ought we to do? And so recently, I just read a book titled After Virtue. The guy's name is Alistair McIntyre. He's not a Christian, but recognizing that true ethics, true right or wrong, true objective morality is impossible in the world of relativism and Darwinism, he famously argues that one cannot answer the question, what ought I to do, before answering the question of what story do I find myself apart? You can't answer the question, what ought you to do, before you understand and answer the question, of what story do I find myself apart? I like that. Of what story do you find yourself apart? We are storied creatures, homo neurons, as some have said. We are learning in Proverbs that we are not so much homo sapiens, wise man, Many have proposed that we are more homo neurons, storytelling man. A story is so important to who we are. As made in the image of God, the God who creates, the God of meaning, we are meaning makers. We are constantly observing, analyzing, organizing, and weaving our experiences into a narrative, a story. You talk to yourself. You have an internal voice. And that internal voice is telling yourself a story about life, purpose, meaning, identity. What's your internal voice saying? What is the internal narrative that you are weaving about yourself and about your life? What kind of story do you find yourself in? What you believe about that will go a long way in determining your experience of life. But, doesn't so much of life feel so much like death? I had flu over the vacation. I felt bad every single day that we were away. Happy vacation. Uh, my dad had surgery to remove a tumor on his bladder. And he was told beforehand that it was a 98% chance that it was cancer. The only question was, is it the killer kind? Those are the doctor's words, bedside manner. Come on, let's, let's work on that. My brother blew out his knee. And has had two surgeries while we were down there and has months and months of rehab ahead of him. And there's some other stuff going on I won't mention. All of that was just in two weeks. What kind of story do I find myself in? According to the indescribably important John chapter 20, it's a story of life, it's a story of resurrection, it's a, it's a comedy. I am no theater expert. But even I know that we often misunderstand the two types of drama. We generally think tragedy is something sad and comedy is something funny. No, the difference between the two is ultimately a difference of ending. Oversimplifying, a tragedy is a story with a sad ending, a bad ending. And a comedy is a story with a happy ending, a good ending. You desperately need to know what kind of story you find yourself in. And if you find yourself in Christ, then you desperately need to know that you find yourself in a story with a happy ending, a good, perfect ending. You find yourself in a comedy. And the resurrection proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And the resurrection, learning to live in light of the resurrection, really can change everything. So let's consider Christ's resurrection from John chapter 20. And let's stick with this story theme. In the basic structure of a story, you have a beginning and a middle and an end. So we will consider the beginning, the middle and end of this story and draw from it lessons about the beginning, the middle and the end of your story. The beginning, the middle and end of of life. But that's what this is about. That's why our sermon title is "It's simple. It's, it's, this is life. This is the story of life. For life is everything. And everything is found in Christ. Let's read our text. And we'll pray and dive into it. I'm going to read for you from John chapter 20. We are going to do, we're going to do the first 10 verses. I will read John 21 through 10. But please pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now... For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's stop there. Let's pray. And we will continue. Father, this is your word. This is the word that you have inspired about the word, Jesus Christ, your son. Who is our life. Who is our everything. Everything. Father, you even ordained before the foundation of the world that we would be sitting here on this Sunday in 2024 considering this word and considering ourselves and our lives in light of this word. Father, please help us. Please help us to pay attention and to focus on that which is of far more importance than what we often give great importance to. Father, help me to clearly teach and explain and Proclaim and apply your word. Father, help us also, each one of us, to, to hear and to receive and to understand your word. Father, help us to increasingly read all that we feel and think and do in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be glorified in this time. We pray that we would be edified. Father, we pray that sinners would be drawn towards the Christ to His life in this time. Father, only you can do these things. So please help me, and please help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, we begin at the beginning. As a wise woman sang 59 years ago, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. We begin at the beginning because we have to begin at the beginning, and at the beginning of a new year, it's particularly helpful to consider the beginning, for the beginning determines the ending. We've got to know what kind of story we find ourselves in. And the beginning of the story helps us know. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Now on the first day of the week. Stop. That's the beginning of the week. And that's important. John, even right here, is signaling to us that something big is happening here. Something, something new. And it should catch our attention that John doesn't say the third day after the crucifixion. That's what we would expect. Jesus says back in 219, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body, about the resurrection. Throughout the synoptics, Jesus keeps telling his disciples, Matthew 16, 21, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. When Paul summarizes the gospel that is of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Three, third, third. But not here. Here is first. Why? Beginnings. The Bible is a book of beginnings. And once we can actually finish John Then we'll take a few weeks to work through the doctrines of grace. We're finally going to go back to Genesis, the book of beginnings. The most important and controversial verse in the Bible is the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning. And that beginning determines everything. If that verse holds true, everything that follows holds true. And John loves the book of Genesis, He plays off of it in his beginning. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're working through the basic structure of a story, beginning, middle, and end, but what is a story? What are are the basic elements that make up a story? People count differently, but one of these elements is always character. A story requires character. Characters, persons, actors, and in Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, we are introduced to the character of the story, the protagonist. And it's not you. It's not me. It's God. It is God and the Word who was both with God and was God. And as the story unfolds, we learn that this God is unique. He is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons one God. And he is the author of the story and he is the actor in the story. John 1 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the creator has entered into his creation. Why? Well, that's what we've been considering for these last couple of months in chapters 18 and 19. He The Word made flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to die. And that's where we left him on Christmas Eve at the end of chapter 19. Crucified, died, and buried. But for us, and for our understanding and explanation of the gospel, that's where we often leave things. That's where we end. Oh, but we can't make that mistake because all of that was for this. All of that was to get us Here, to get us to the first day of the week, to get us to this new beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created what? Life. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. The word took on flesh to live, suffer, and die. And on the first day of the week, look at the end of verse 9. He must rise from the dead. I love that must. That's a divine necessity. Christ, the author of life cannot be held by death, the ender of life. And so the whole point of this is that this is a new beginning. The beginning of your story, and we tend to think of our birth or we think of our sin, how much sin characterizes our story. We are born sinners, but that's not first. That's not our beginning. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will in Christ. Your story begins before the foundation of the world. Your story begins before the beginning. It begins with election. It begins with grace to what end. Well, hold on. We'll get to that at the end. Let's first Consider the middle of the story. Let's look at point number two. Late high school, early college. One of my favorite bands was Jimmy Eat World. Uh, it's a great name. Their most popular, but far from their best, song was titled "The Middle." It just takes some time, little girl. You're in the middle of the ride. You find yourself right now in the middle of the ride. What's the middle like? Well, back to John. We haven't gotten. Very far yet. Back to verse 1. We've seen that characters are key elements in any story. We know the main character, but there are also supporting characters. Let's consider one. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. I think this is neat. We just read in Ephesians that our story begins an election even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that also then must include Mary. And I think this is so neat because we basically know nothing about Mary. There are many Marys in this story. This is one of them. And we were just introduced to her for the first time only 18 verses ago. And she's going to be front and center next week in one of the sweetest stories in scripture. 11 through 18, is one of the most meaningful, personal, intimate, compassionate scenes. The the first appearance of the risen Christ, and it's to Mary. It's to this Mary, this Mary whom we know almost nothing about. Many assume that this Mary is the woman of Luke chapter 7, who comes and anoints Christ's feet with ointment and her own tears, but the text never names the woman. Many people assume that that woman was a prostitute, though the text only says that she was a sinner. So again, we have no evidence that Luke 7 was Mary. We have no evidence that Mary was a prostitute. She all of a sudden plays this hugely prominent role at both the death and resurrection of Christ. The only other place we learn anything about Mary is Luke chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus is proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. That's it. That's all we know about Mary. But that's enough. For now we understand her devotion to Christ, her faithfulness to Christ. She is at the cross when all the disciples, save for John, have run. She is first at the tomb. Why? Because of what Christ had done for her. Because of the healing and the freedom she had found in Christ. We don't know the specifics of her condition. We don't know the why of her condition. But we do know that it must have been terrible. And we do know the end and the solution of her condition. Christ. And so she followed Christ. She loved Christ because he first loved her. And I love the insignificance of Mary. She was a nobody in the eyes of the world. Hers was a story of no significance. Doesn't your story sometimes feel like a story of no significance? I, I struggle with that sometimes. Hers was a story of no significance. Hers was a story of great suffering. Doesn't your story feel like that sometimes? Hers was a story of little hope until Christ entered into her story and changed everything. And now here she is, the first At the tomb. Now, we talked about this in Matthew 28. There's no contradiction or conflict in the different accounts of the resurrection, but working out all the details can be a little bit difficult. Uh, From the other, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Two things there. First, Mary doesn't yet understand. We're going to leave. Mary here for now, and we're going to come back to her, and she's going to get a whole week next week. But Mary clearly doesn't see the stone rolled away and think, oh, resurrection. Jesus, you told know us all about this. He must, have, he must have done it. No. The resurrection is so other. It's so unexpected. It's so supernatural that even though Jesus had been teaching it to his followers, they, they just could not understand it. Resurrection was not on their radar. It wasn't even in the realm of possibility These were not dumb ancients who would just believe anything. No, they understood dead people stay dead. Dead people don't come back to life. Death is the end. Mary does not yet understand. Oh, but she will wonderfully next week. They'll come back. Second, though, let's consider Peter and John. Remember that John, the author of this gospel, never names himself in this gospel. But there is a disciple throughout known only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's John. It has to be John. And we've seen that there's a close connection throughout the story between Peter and John. We're going to see that again in chapter 21. But look back first at chapter 18, verse 15. Because I think this is important to what's going on here. Back in 1815, we read, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. So that too must be John. And what happens there after those verses? Peter's denial of Christ. And so John was there. John was with Peter. Witness to Peter's great failure in denial of the Christ he loved. Witness to the great sin of Peter. Our Peter gave us an excellent exposition and explanation of sin last week. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is not doing what our good God requires of us. And in so doing, we've been seeing that sin is our attempt to be God. Sin is the substitution of self into the place that only God deserves to be. Sin is a rejection of God and then a great affirmation of self. That's what Peter has done in his denial of Christ. He has asserted the priority of self. He has protected the self. He has focused on the self. He has neglected, rejected, and forgotten Christ. And where we all are now in the middle of our stories, this is something that we desperately need to remember. This is our problem, this focus on self. And yet it is the very thing that the triumph of the therapeutic culture around us and increasingly the triumph of the therapeutic church around us is telling us, focus on yourself. Find yourself. Figure yourself out. But what if the thing we're being told to do is actually the thing that is our very problem? It cannot be denied. But we are so focused on ourselves. We are so subjectively minded, so egocentric, so self-obsessed. We have forgotten God and remembered self. We have forgotten God and focused On self. What if our greatest need is to be delivered from our morbid preoccupation with ourselves? I know that's one of my great needs. Sin is our problem, and sin is fundamentally selfishness. Sin is self. And so one of our great needs is is a shift of focus, a, a a mindset change. I'm gonna keep plugging Bible study. This is again a great reason why you should come to our study of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is all about God. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says, the theme of Ephesians is God. Thanks, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Thank you. Look, this God is a big and a glorious God. He is a good and a gracious God. And nowhere makes that more clear than Ephesians. Our greatest need is to know Him, to understand Him, to have minds more fixed on and filled with Him and less fixed on and filled with self. It's actually quite simple, though it's very difficult. He's the main character of the story. And so everything goes wrong and begins to fall apart when we try to make ourselves the center of the story. And everything around us is encouraging us to try and make ourselves the center of the story. Peter took his eyes off Christ. He put them on himself, and he ended up denying the Lord He loved the Lord of life. Quite simply, the middle of the story is sin. The, The beginning is good. The beginning is creation. The beginning is election. The middle of our story is sin. And sin is our doing. Sin is our problem. It is your one problem, not your circumstances. Not whatever you are feeling because of your circumstances, but sin. It was Peter's problem. It was the middle of Peter's story but we know that it was not the end of Peter's story. And we can't know this for sure, but looking at those verses, doesn't it seem that Peter and John are together? Isn't that neat? John witnessed Peter's sin, his great failure. And I I wonder what that silent Saturday was like for Peter. Probably not very fun, but it at least seems like he shared it with John. Peter was not alone in his sin. John was with him. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, seems to love here like the Jesus who loved him. Again, we can't read too much into it, but there's got to be something to the fact they're together and to the fact that when, and to the fact that when Peter hears the news, he runs to the tomb. I think I would have been tempted to run away from the tomb. Peter runs straight it. Look at verses three and four. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I've already said that as a probably now former runner, how much I love the little detail that John throws in there. But if you think about it, it is a little bit strange. Why does he throw that in there? Is it just his pride? Getting the best of him. Oh, by the way, you know, Jeremy and I were running together, but I outran Jeremy. Which would not be the case right now, because I'm broken. Is that all that John is doing? No, of course not. Why did John outrun Peter? Again, we don't know for sure. People propose all kinds of crazy things, actually. We mentioned it in Sunday School. The simplest reason is probably that that John was younger than Peter. We know that Peter is going to be martyred in the 60s. So we don't know exactly how old he was. Well, it seems that John lives all the way into the 90s. So we can't know their specific ages, but John must have been a fairly young man at this point to live into the 90s. And so most people just assume that Peter was a little bit older than John. So John is younger and faster. I'm going to win any race I run against my dad. Sorry, dad. Simply because I'm younger than him. He's turning 70 in three weeks. He was far more athletic than me, so at the same age, he'd probably win the race. But 30 years younger than him, I'm going to win. So that's likely how John outruns Peter. But why? Why put that in there? Why include that detail? I think the simplest explanation is because it actually happened. They did run to the tomb. John did outrun Peter. What we just read, what we're reading and considering is is history. This is one of those little details that lend great credibility to the trustworthiness of John's account. If you are inventing and making up a story about a huge world-changing event, you probably don't mention that you're faster than someone else. But when you are recording what you remember, what you witnessed, little details like this are going to make their way into your account, and provide strong evidence of the truth of your account. And so what seems like a minor, incidental, humorous, unimportant detail is actually quite important. Why? Because this is an account of the resurrection. This is an account of life. Why are these verses here? What's the point of John 20, 1 through 10? Have you ever noticed that the actual resurrection itself is never described? We're never told what happened early that momentous Sunday morning inside the tomb before the women arrived. We're never told the exact moment or the exact how the dead Christ was resurrected to life. But these verses are here to give you all kinds of witnesses and evidence and reason to believe that this most unexpected and supernatural of things actually did happen. This is just as much history as anything you study in history class. This is more important than anything you study in history class. And that's why Mary, in a culture that did not value the testimony of women, that did not even count or accept the testimony of women, that if you're making something up, you don't start off your foundational myth with women as the first and primary witnesses to it. Unless that's how it actually happened. You don't throw in obscure details like relative foot speed. Unless it actually happened. Details, details. You've got to do something with these details. These details that point to the truth of the resurrection. And there's more of them. Go back to the text. John loves strange details. John is faster. He gets there first. But look at verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. What's the deal with the linen cloths? John makes a really big deal about them. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, and the result is verse 8. So they're important. But first, why doesn't John go in? No idea. But when Peter arrives, verse 6, he goes right into the tomb. It could be due to a difference in personality We've seen that Peter is bold, brash, and impetuous, and so he just charges right in. That that feels like Peter. Maybe John is of a different disposition. Again, I don't know. Maybe younger John is waiting to defer to older Peter. I don't know. But in John 6, John again emphasizes the clothes. Peter saw the linen cloths lying there. And again in verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So the grave, grave clothes were clearly important for John. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. I think the implication of the text is he saw the clothes and believed. When defending the resurrection, we often talk about the evidence of the empty tomb. And that's not wrong. You have to have some explanation for the empty tomb. Historians, both Christian and not, are in almost universal agreement on a number of facts revolving around Jesus. This is often referred to as the minimal facts argument. The minimal facts argument. It goes, there's different versions of it, but it goes something like, number one, Jesus was a uh, well-testified-to historical person living in the early first century in Israel, Number two, Jesus was crucified on a cross at the hands of the Romans. Number three, the well-known tomb in which Jesus was buried was found to be empty three days later. Number four, many people claimed to see and interact with Jesus after the empty tomb. Number five, the once timid, fearful disciples were utterly transformed by something. And number six, Christianity exploded onto the scene on the basis of the preaching of the resurrection. No one of any credibility denies these basic historical facts. The question is what best explains these basic historical facts. And we obviously believe that only the resurrection best explains these basic historical facts. That's the evidence of the empty tomb. But that's not exactly the approach that John takes. That he sees and as a result believes. Why? For the compelling nature of the clothes, I think, is John's only other mention of clothes in a similar situation, which is, of course, Lazarus. I think the clothes are here to compare and contrast what has happened here to Christ with what has just happened a week earlier to Lazarus. John 11, 44. Lazarus, the man who had died, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen Strips, clothes, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Lazarus was restored to life by the Christ who is the resurrection and the life with all the clothes and cloths still on him. Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, is resurrected and he leaves the clothes behind. The point is that this is different than that. This is something entirely other. This is something entirely new. And the clothes testify to that. And John, who witnessed Lazarus restored to life, still bound in clothes, sees Christ's clothes and know Christ. And he understands. He believes. He believes finally uh, that what Jesus had been teaching them, that he would rise again Three days later, on the first day of the week, he finally believes that it has actually and wonderfully happened. And if it did happen, and all of these details and witnesses are testifying that it did, if it did happen, it changes everything. But listen, first off, if it didn't happen, it changes nothing. It is nothing. Christ is nothing. This is not just a nice story whether it's true or not. This is not just a metaphor. Paul is very clear. 1 Corinthians 15:17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And I don't know about you, but I am very aware of my sins. And to still be in them, all of them past, present, future, is a devastating and despairing thought. The wages of sin is death. Without the resurrection of Christ, we are still in those sins. Why? Well, listen to Paul in Romans 4.25. When we talk about sin and justification, we talk almost exclusively about the death of Christ, not Paul. Listen to Romans 4.24 first. Paul writes, it will be counted to us who believe in him. What will be counted to us? Righteousness, You have to have righteousness. You have to be righteous. You have to be counted perfectly righteous to be in relationship with the perfectly righteous God. And so Romans 4 is all about how even Abraham was justified, was counted righteous, right and right with God, only through faith. He says it will also be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and who was raised for our justification. See, our justification is dependent on His resurrection. Remember your story. The middle of your story. The middle of your story is sin. The sin that is self. The sin that is death. The sin that separates from the God of life. Sin is the problem. Christ is the solution. The whole Christ. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The whole thing. The whole person And work is required to deal with your one problem, sin. We are seeking to take sin more seriously. Peter walked us through killing sin last week. He said it is sin systematically and substantially subdued. Wonderful. It's a good, amazing illustration. But sin makes you sad and miserable. Always. Sin will never ultimately satisfy Sin will never ultimately get and gain you what you want. The secret then, as Peter said, to enduring happiness is killing sin. And the foundation to killing sin is the Christ who first sets us free from the penalty and power of sin. And he does it by submitting himself to the penalty and power of sin in our place. Remember, think of sin as substitution. Sin is substituting ourself into God's place. Think of salvation as substitution. Salvation is God substituting himself into our place in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus takes our penalty and he dies our death. He so identifies with us and our sin that Paul says that he became sin for us. But he himself had no sin. He was perfectly righteous. That death then has no legitimate claim on him. And so the resurrection is first Christ's justification, his vindication, the proof of who he is, and the proof that God has accepted what he has done for us. The resurrection is the proof that it really is finished, as he has just proclaimed. In Christ, in the resurrected Christ, your sin is finished. In Christ, the resurrected Christ, your death is finished. And that means that in Christ, your end, the end is guaranteed to be gloriously good. Let's close with that end. Point number three, quickly. Look at verse nine. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture. I'm still not 100% sure how to take that verse. Let me think more on that as we get to Thomas in a few weeks. That could be similar to 2029, where Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So it's good that John saw the clothes, the evidence, and believed. It's better to hear God's word and believe. I'm still sorting out that verse. You right now, though, are hearing God's word. Do you believe? Do you believe what? We've seen it in the rest of verse nine. That he, Christ, must rise from the dead. That he did rise from the dead. And then in verse 10, the disciples return back to their home. It seems with John believing and Peter still pondering and we'll return to them in a couple of weeks. But first you, are you believing or pondering still or denying even in word or deed? If you are visiting with us today or if you are not a believer, welcome. We are very, very glad that you are here with us. We so want you to consider the claims of Christ and the claims of the resurrection of this Christ. The scriptures are very clear that we are all of us sinners and that sin separates us from God and will result in death and hell unless, unless by the grace of God, you turn away from that sin and trust in the Christ who came to deal with with our sin problem for us. Repent, believe, and live. There is no one like this Jesus. You will find what you are looking for, life and joy and peace, nowhere else but in this Jesus. If you have questions about that, Pastor Mike, myself, a lot of people around you would love to talk with you about what that means. But if you are, by the grace of God, already in Christ, I want us to end as we began. I want to leave you with the main and most important thing. If Christ has been raised from the dead, if he has defeated your sin and your death, if he has risen and ascended and ruling and reigning right now, if he is the sovereign Lord with all authority, directing all things, if he has promised to work out all those things for your good, then the story that you find yourself in is a good story with a good and perfect ending. No matter what you feel right now, no matter the difficulty, whatever scene you're currently in, no matter how dark it is, no matter how much suffering is going on right now, no matter the the tragedy you may be experiencing, at the moment, in Christ, you are ultimately in a comedy. And the end will be indescribably and incomparably good. And nothing that happens now can change that. In fact, everything that happens now, even the hard and suffering things, in the hand of a gracious heavenly Father can only serve to enhance that good ending. We have got to learn to believe that we find ourselves in the good story of life. We have got to learn to live this life in all of its difficulties in light of the life to come and all of its glories. Faith trusts the resurrected Lord with and in all things. Trusts that the resurrected Lord will work ultimate good out of all things. Faith trusts that the amazing things God's word says to you and about you are actually true, no matter what you may be experiencing or feeling right now. Let me give you just a couple of these as we close. I want to leave you with these. This, this my first sermon of the new year. Do we really believe these things? Do we really live in light of the wonderful things that God's word says to us and about us? It's a new year, so it's, of course, the perfect time for Psalm 16. Do we believe, verse 11, that you make known to me the path of life, that in your presence there is fullness of joy? that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christy was asking me about Psalm 103 this week. Here's one of the secrets of the Christian life. You can apply this principle to all circumstances, all loss, all suffering, all hardship. This is how you can change. This is how you can face all those things. The secret is Psalm 103, verse 2, forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits benefits. What benefits? There's a ton of them in the psalm. Go and read it tonight. But verse 10, first and foremost, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Listen, if you know yourself as a sinner, that's everything. If that does not fill your heart with with gladness, then you don't yet really understand your sin. Pastor Mike closed his new year's email writing may God's gift of forgiveness overwhelm you. That's it. That's the secret. Never getting over being overwhelmed by the grace and the love of God. What about first Peter chapter one? Do you believe this verse three? Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In Christ, you have new life, you have a living hope, you have an imperishable inheritance waiting. For you are being guarded by God Himself. All of it entirely by the grace of God. Second Corinthians five seventeen. You know it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a new creation. Old gone. New now. You are new in Christ. One last Ephesians plug. Do we believe the verse we're going to consider Thursday? 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. You have already been blessed with that in Christ. This is your story. It is a good, glorious story of grace. It is a story of life. It is the only true happily ever after for all of eternity, only getting better and better and better as it goes. What would it look like to actually believe that all of this was true? The resurrection proves that it is. And yet, as we've said, we are so many of us so sad. Why is that? Our text actually tells us. Look at verse 9, one last time. It's right there. As yet... They did not understand the scripture. That's our problem. That is our constant problem. All of our problems in some way boil down to that. The truths are here. I just read uh, like four of a countless number of amazing truths and promises. The truths are here in God's word and they are very clear and they are eternally and unimaginably good. (laughs) Believe them. The scriptures are the key. No, this Bible is not a magic pill that drives sadness away. No, we know that life is hard. Sad things happen. We will all face much suffering in this sin-cursed, fallen world. But there is a way to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There is a way to rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say, rejoice. And it's the eternally glorious truth found only in God's word. You cannot live the Christian life. You cannot experience the joy and peace of the Christian life apart from God's word. Apart from the difficult discipline of memorizing and meditating on God's word continually. Psalm 1, that's where the blessing is found because the word is where God himself is found. And so whatever resolutions you've made this year, whatever you are seeking, whatever you're thinking you ought to do in 2024, this must be at the top of the list. The life Giving knowledge of God must be at the top of the list. We all want to be happy. We all just don't quite yet believe that our happiness is entirely bound up in Christ who is found in the Word. So guys, the, the, world, the world desperately needs our joy. The world desperately needs joyful, contented, happy, uh, peaceful Christians. Our witness to the world needs our joy and our joy is found in in the presence of the Lord. My desire for myself this year, for my family, and for my church family is for all of us to increasingly believe that and zealously pursue the Lord through his word. That is our only hope. That's, that, your only hope for true joy and peace is found in Christ, who is found in the word. The resurrection changes everything. Pay attention during our closing psalm. The resurrection is how all will be well, all is well, all must be well, even if things right now sure don't seem and feel like that is the case. The resurrection means that if you find yourself in Christ, that is the case. You find yourself in a good story of life and joy and peace. And the end of that story, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he is the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He is fullness of joy. Live now in light of then. Face the middle of the story in light of its good end. Face what might feel like death right now in light of the resurrection and the light of Christ. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Father, preaching is far easier than practicing. Teaching is easier than doing. Father, please do your work now through your word. Father, comfort discouraged hearts. Give hope to the despairing. Fix hearts and minds on Christ, the resurrected Christ, who did all that he did that we might live and rest, and enjoy him, and enjoy life in him now and in the life to come. Father, I desperately want to find my joy in the Lord, and I desperately want this to be a place and a people who find great joy in this year. He died, so that we may be alive uh, with him. Father, do now the work that only you can do, we ask and pray, in Jesus' name, amen.